You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage at work, at home and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard. Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. Today's podcast is with uh, Russ Newman, who's a specialist in new media and digital education at New York University. He was the John Derby Evans Professor of Media Technology and Communication Studies and Research Professor at the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan, and also taught at the University of Pennsylvania, where he directed the Information and Society Program at the Annenberg Public Policy Center. Um, he's written a bunch of books, and his new one is called Evolutionary Intelligence, How Technology Will Make Us Smarter. Love the conversation. I think you will, too. Enjoy the pod. Unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Russ Newman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So a couple of weeks ago, my wife Anne was leading a workshop at a care conference at UCLA in Los Angeles and was put on by our friends at Caring Across Generations. So she was teaching a class around improv skills for caregivers. But the thing that blew her away was a piece of technology she was given because she had two Spanish speakers in the group. So Anne would speak into this microphone uh, on her lapel that would instantaneously translate English to Spanish into headphones of these two participants. And you write about this kind of technology in your book, and I don't know, but the fact that we have a technology that can answer the origin myth of the Tower of Babel is absolutely <laughs> mind-blowing to me. This is Why is that everyone talking about this? You know, every time I get to work on a paper or a book, I want to put that wonderful image of the Tower of Babel, uh, the biblical image, uh, yep. to, I guess, sure, is it, that, that everyone's saying, oh my gosh, I can't speak to my neighbors because we all... God had smote us and gave us different languages. We no longer recognize each other's tongue. And, and course, now you're like, God, we have an app for that. That is <laughs> right. <laughs> well, a, a warning to our, our listeners: uh, the, the the biblical message was beware of hubris. God, oh, fair. <laughs> God got upset and said, "You you think you can climb to the heavens with that tower of yours? Mm-hmm. Be not so proud." And uh, so I think the issue of, uh, I mean, we all use the term hype to yeah. characterize when a new technology demonstrates some particular strengths. We go, oh, my gosh. So there will be a hype cycle. We're probably at the peak of the hype hype cycle this year. Uh, and then there'll be some uh, dramatic failures uh, from which we will learn. But I think modesty and uh, avoiding the kind of hubris that, well, now we've got the answer to everything. Uh, that said, my role in the public discussion about AI and its use 
is uh, I'm in the minority. As so many of my colleagues have said, beware, uh, Siri wants to kill you. And I right. keep saying, uh, I'm not so sure she does. <laughs> well, and I think I, I think where where you ground the book uh, uh, makes sense with regard to you know, we humans are storytelling machines. We love our stories and our, and, and, and we don't always, we're, we're certainly not always conscious of what those stories have been telling us. And, and, um, uh, you and I are both of a certain age where we probably saw 2001 A Space Odyssey in the theater. I did. Um, and so Hal was killing us before Siri was killing us. And you even talk about the Terminator and like, so our, I think, you know, I, we both grew up in places where science fiction was constantly giving us this warning that the, the computers, the robots, they're going to take over. Um, but what you offer in the book is that actually this, this, if we see this as a collaboration, um, then this is an incredible addition to our ability, especially uh, in, in the various areas of biases that all human beings walk around with. Um, and if we can get help with that, I would think we'd want the help. Ellie, you're a, a storyteller. You're a, a student of the narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, and many of us professionally, and I just wanted to back up a little bit and say, well, wh why is it that humans are so resonant with the notion of a story? And I think the answer is, if you think about the 400,000 years that basically modern humans have been roaming around the globe, uh, we've only had partial speech. It was mostly grunts and gestures <laughs> and partial language and certainly no written language. So how do you remember stuff? Well, you tell epic stories uh, and uh, one thing happens after another. And that's sort of how it makes it possible for the human brain to organize and make sense of a very complicated and confusing world. So, and there's a moral to the tale often that helps us make judgments in the future. So if you think about it, uh, that's why when we project onto these uh, robots that want to kill us, that's an anthropomorphic projection because we grew up in the jungles and grasslands fighting for scarce resources against other humans and probably other animals. And computers didn't grow up that way. No. <laughs> you made the reference to Hal. And when they finally unplugged much of Hal, he was singing some, some nursery rhymes and, and a wonderful section in the movie. Um, and the, the computers didn't compete with each other for scarce electrons. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think we can take advantage of the fact that we have the capacity now with these computers doing very complicated logical processes to program them, program them to complement uh, the human biases and, and prejudices and prejudgments and confirmation biases. So that uh, that's why I say uh, this is a case where earlier technologies made us stronger and telecommunications, telecommunications let us communicate over long distances. Mm -hmm. There's a real chance for these uh, technologies to make us smarter. And you're right. This is the, the way I know this is dominating the narrative is basically the, all the podcasts I listen to, they keep talking about AI. We just went through this strike, uh, which in large part, uh, SAG-AFTRA, which was talking uh, about AI. And uh, just about an hour before we started taping this podcast, uh, Harvard Business Review, the publicists that, that, that sent me the books coming up, and it is one AI book after another. Um, and you've been in this world for a while, which is why I appreciate all the different angles you talk about. And one of the things I, I had a quick qu a question about that comes up early in your book 
Um, and I wrote down the quote you say in the book, quote, the Turing test has dominated thinking about machine intelligence for three generations. I will argue that this highly intuitive model is actually misleading and wrongheaded. Um, many people know Alan Turing from uh, the film where Benedict Cumberbatch played him. But tell us a little bit about why the Turing test is not the thing that maybe we thought it was. Um, the Turing test is basically a very informal casually put forward notion by Turing before we really invented computers. He, he had come up with some abstract concepts that turned out to be very influential in the ultimate architecture. This is the 1930s and 40s and then the early 50s. Um, he said, if you're communicating with a, an unknown object, this, the notion would be on a keyboard typing and the unknown pers person or machine on the other side of the uh, curtain was responding in such a way as you couldn't be sure whether the person you're or the machine you're talking to is a human or a machine. Mm -hmm. That's when we've reached this so-called AGI, uh, artificial general intelligence, human level intelligence. So the Turing test is, well, now if we're going to invent stuff, let's see if they can be as smart as humans. And the reason I reject that is why would we want to base the model on all of the flawed and evolved yes. problems we've got? Here's a chance for us to, to, basically recognize let's go back to that hubris issue recognize the the limitations of our cognitive capacities and come up with something even better yeah we're a lemon i guess is what you're saying <laughs> you're looking like this is like don't don't do that um it's it's interesting too because so in our in field when businesses bring second city in to work with them a lot of that is because uh, the skill building that happens here is making individuals aware that they are fallible creatures and that uh, we're going to fail over and over and over again. In fact, it's often funny. Uh, and this idea of being uh, the ability to make something out of nothing with someone else requires you to navigate all through that kind of ambiguity and 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 take whatever's in front of you and play with it. And mistakes are OK and, and, and all that stuff. And I think one thing that we're saying is probably true of humans and technology is of course, they're error prone. Uh, and I think what 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 we're seeing with this particular kind of technology, which I think is different, and you can explain this to us, is that it can learn now in a way that maybe wasn't available to other forms of earlier technology. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. So how how do they get to do that? <laughs> how, does, how does that happen? Well, uh, the fundamental brilliance of uh, Alan Turing and... Uh, uh, Neumann and the early designers of computers was to uh, have an if statement. Hmm. So the computer basically says, well, if this is true, I'm going to go in this direction. And if this is false, I'm going to go in another direction. And if you pile those if statements up in a complex way using something they call Boolean logic, hmm. you can really generate uh, a sophisticated, um, a sophisticated decision process. And uh, the term artificial intelligence was invented in the mid-1950s where a bunch of scientists got together up on, uh, on the, camp, the Dartmouth campus in the summer of 1955 and said, well, what could we possibly do now that we've got a computer? And the computer was barely 10 years old then. And they had an image of this thing that would be separate from and competing with humans and could be as smart as humans. And they went through 60 years of failure after failure or partial success or there would be funding that was withdrawn because they said, oh, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. This isn't working. We need something else. 
And so the question that gets asked is, well, what was missing and how come we've got all the excitement now? And the answer is there were three things that was that were missing. The first was strong enough computational capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, our engineering friends call it compute. I got to have a lot of compute. I, I don't know why that really strikes me as money. <laughs> I want more compute. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is hundreds of millions of dollars and many uh, gigawatts of electrical power to, to get all this compute. The second thing they didn't have was a large data source from which to process this. And of course, the internet has taken much of the world, digitized it, and made it accessible to these large language models and these visual models. And the third thing is they didn't have the math to deal with the millions of parameters that were in. Um, there was a very famous article called, acutely, attention is all you need. It had some simplifying mathematics so that they could go through gigantic amounts of, of data and come up with um, parameters to help the decision process. Literally thousands and thousands of sequential if statements. And so it turns out that the GPT-3, 3.5, and 4 have in the neighborhood of 200 billion parameters. And they're done in layers. Uh, That's why they call it a neural net. And that corresponds roughly to the 90 billion neurons in the human brain. So if you ask a child something, you're going to get a different answer pretty much each time you ask. And it turns out that if you ask these systems, they may answer one way or another because the number of pathways to generate an answer is so complicated. So uh, they learn and they are trained and uh, the um, P in GPT is pre-trained, meaning as the models are built, they make judgments and the judgments are corrected by uh, human feedback. Um, And the next stage, and this is where it gets really exciting, is everybody can have their own AI system. (laughs) What you do is you take the program basic model and you tune it. And it turns out that you can get a completely different answer by putting in hundreds of words, maybe even thousands of words, which we now call prompt engineering. Mm-hmm. And so you set a context for the this massive billion-dollar engine to answer, and you can set the context in a very sophisticated way. And the, co- the capacity for creativity, it's not the machine that came up with much of what's going on. It was the, the brilliance, the human creativity and impulse in creating the prompt, a thousand-word prompt is a complicated, uh, yeah, complicated way of getting one of these systems to respond. So I don't think it's just putting in two words and uh, <laughs> and getting all the answers you want out the other end. That's right. Uh, I was speaking at this conference this morning, and I'm referencing the work of Nick Epley, one of the scientists that we work at the, at the University of Chicago, and he, a lot of his work is around how human beings uh, get it wrong. That in any given situation, we're, we're only getting it right 20 to 30% of the time. And, and that surprises people a lot. And then I sort of remind them, I'm like, well, if, you know, if you're a great baseball hitter and you're hitting 300, that's getting it right 30% of the time. I mean, there's like in, in these highly skilled sort of areas. And when you talk about what we understand about the human brain, I think, I think the analogy used in the book is it's like trying to understand a football game by standing outside the stadium. I, I, which is amazing to me. I mean, do do we? Re, I, I guess it's just it has to be true that we know that little because when you're talking about these kinds of billions that we're talking about, how, how and the context changes all the, the given time, right? This is enormously complex. So what you're trying to solve for is something that we just could never do on our own if we didn't have this 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 uh, um, 
what you refer to as evolutionary intelligence, this AI, this 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 companion uh, to help us. Let, right? let, me, let me let me clarify that. Um, yeah. Some listeners may be puzzled by that metaphor. Uh, basically what's going on inside the football stadium is a very complicated process with all these people cheering and, and very talented athletes on the field. Yep. And if all you know is the crowd noises, cause you're outside the stadium, the metaphor is that's what we know as human beings about what's going on inside the human brain, because we're limited to measuring electrical signals, which we can do very carefully in time, but we don't know where in the brain the location was. And then we've got fMRI, which measures blood intensity, blood movement, and we can do that with some geography within the brain, but it takes it's it's very slow. Um, so there's you know a trillion things going on inside the brain which we just don't have access to. Uh, maybe at some point we'll have ways that we can deal with uh, understanding better what's going on as we stand outside the stadium. There are some colleagues of ours, including uh, Elon Musk's Neuralink in San Francisco, where they are uh, actually embedding uh, chips inside uh, animal and ultimately human brains. I, I sort of find that icky. Uh, oh, I'm not letting Musk anywhere near my brain. <laughs> I, I'm going on record, and I don't advise you do that either. <laughs> well, I, I sort of say, well, I'm in favor of research, but let's let's work on finding a way that we can find enhance our capacity to understand how we think without having to uh, raise the scalpel. That's right. Um, so I, re- I remember when Google Glass came out. So that that was highly touted, um, and it didn't work. And there's very smart people over there uh, uh, working on this stuff. Can, can you tell us why that didn't why that didn't pan out? What a great story! The Google Glass talk about hubris. Um, Okay, so we start with this basic notion, which is ultimately correct and important, which is the original. We talked about uh, Turing and von Neumann. Um, At that point, the computer took up an entire large room with large air conditioners and vacuum tubes. Then the computer became a smaller room and then a refrigerator size. That was the DEC PDP-11 computer and then a desktop and then a laptop and now in your hand as a uh, extremely sophisticated computational cell phone, smartphone. And the notion is, well, it's migrating towards our bodies and will ultimately be wearable, perhaps as glasses, ultimately perhaps as smart contact lenses. Mm. Uh, just this week, a, a pin, which is, looks like a badge that you'd wear at a, conf- a, a conference, mm-hmm. it has a camera in it, uh, has been introduced. So it's uh, a wearable, that communicates with you and by voice and gesture. Um, so the notion that there's this motion towards the human and the, the first and most, I think, obvious one is say, well, let's just put the intelligence into the glasses and put a camera in the glasses so that the computational system can see things and then flash some information on the glasses somehow so that the eyes can interpret the feedback. Uh, or uh, in some cases to speak through the uh, where the lenses go over your ears and have a little speaker there so only you can hear uh, what Siri or whomever is saying to you. Um, and what happened with the original version uh, was the, um, uh, the the perception of other people in the room that they were being spied on right. just changed the whole dynamics. So uh, Google Glass wearers were seen as 
violating all kinds of norms of social interaction. Um, and they, the defenders try to say, well, we can put a red light on or do this or that to try to tell people when we are and when we aren't recording. Um, it'll be interesting to see how this new device uh, gets interpreted. Um, but um, I think ultimately we'll find a way. Some of the new glasses don't have cameras at all. Yeah, They're just uh, taking in environmental information and providing uh, extra input to the individual. We've gotten very comfortable talking to our smart speakers. Yep. And so we get up in the morning and chat and ask a few questions. And the smart speaker would say, well, you wanted me to tell you about the sports events coming on today? And they come up with ideas, so-called, of their own. Uh, so that's a very successful verbal audio interaction Um my guess is increasing. By the way, this uh, pin that you wear, mm-hmm. uh, you say, well, how do you get, how does it communicate with you? Cause it's sitting there on your chest pinned to your shirt or jacket. And the answer is you put your hand in front of the pin and it projects a text on, or a graphic onto your hand. Uh, so my guess is that's a stepwise thing that that's not going to be the ultimate. <laughs> no. And I think the analogy that I take out of this, which applies to the work that we do, which is, um, you know, it's living in dialogue or living in monologue. And if you're in Google Glass, it's a, it, you're, you're giving a monologue. You're the one with this. It's, it's a one-way conversation. And I think if anything, the world we live in has shown us like it's at least a two-person conversation and probably more than that at this point in terms of where, where we are. So, you know, what it always strikes me, you know, we start Second City started in 1959 with, with you know, basically uh, creating um, short-form comedy, in conversation with our audience. So we ask for suggestions. We play stuff back to them. We crowdsource essentially uh, laughter. If, if, they, if they're laughing, we keep this, the material in. If they don't, we get rid of it and all that. But it was always about an art form where uh, it was sort of democratic and we were all playing. It was, uh, you know, going back and forth, the ultimate sort of feedback loop. And then flash forward 65 years later, nearly, and, you know, what's what's dominating, you know, entertainment is short short form content that is going back and forth between audience and people creating based on that. And it's it's and I don't know. I mean, you certainly look at the list of the 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 thinkers who were at the University of Chicago in in the 50s. And it's like a who's who. I mean, Martin Buber's there and Niebauer. And I mean, it's just an unbelievable list of of great thinkers. So maybe maybe some of our guys took they didn't have a theater department. They might have been taking classes there as well. Um, But I think it's 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 what is so interesting about this is is. You, what you are doing in, in, in this book in many ways is saying you got to get rid of the old story um, and, and be able to tell yourself a new story. And this technology w- will take time. But and I and I you just use the example. So, I you know, I wake up in the morning and I have um, uh, Alexa put on, you know, my NPR station. And, and there's certain certain ways that you and I will check to see if my alarm's on by talking, talking to that. And it was, it was interesting when you talk about, uh, you say in the book, quote, with current technologies, if you want a weather forecast, you ask for it. In the future, one can imagine it will be provided as you reach for your jacket in the closet. I think that's great technology. That, you know, that, that just simply is like, of course, like what, you know, where am I going to go? And, and I, it do, that does not feel like a violation. It feels like giving me one less thing to worry about in my very busy day of what I want to focus on. Right. Uh, I agree. It's great technology. It's a little scary as you reach for your yeah. coat and it says, uh, by the way, it's even colder. Get get a heavier jacket. <laughs> and you go, wait a minute. 
Look, I mean, I live in Chicago. We need that. We need that advice. It's beautiful today. It's going to be freezing tomorrow. uh, So uh, the the kinds of issues that get brought up here is if as these systems become situationally and environmentally aware, Mm -hmm. who's in charge? And most of the scary talk has been that Siri wants to shoot you or take all your atoms or something. And my concern is that if big tech has ultimate control over these big systems, they will be designing the responses to serve their economic and and positional, I don't know, regulatory position. And I'm my my warning when I say there be dragons uh, is that um, the primary concern I think has to be the humans that are controlling these systems and having transparency and openness uh, and so uh, I've been using this one liner. It's a little bit awkward. I'm saying the best defense about a bad guy with an AI system is a good guy with an AI system. <laughs> and I, I'm not sure I'm fully appreciative of its source, but I think the message actually makes some sense because it means when we worry that an AI system is not aligned and it's starting to do something for whatever reason environmentally, uh, people say, well, we can't think as fast as those systems think. And I say, yeah, but we can build systems that are monitoring and correcting. So not only can AI systems correct us, they can correct other AI systems if it's open and transparent and a competitive uh, environment. Uh, I would think that you or an editor at one point wanted to call the book Here Be Dragons. <laughs> no? Uh, well, uh, I try. I'm trying to position myself as as the relative progressive optimist, and uh, be the opposite of so that. We got so many so many dragon slayers out there. Uh, I wanted to say, let's let's see if we can use this dragon to heat some food for us. I love. Why don't we tell the, our audience too where you got that? Because I, I did not know this on on. It was map making, right? Yeah, it was map making. And when the uh, cartographer didn't know what was out there, he would draw some wiggly lines and put in a dragon in the sea, saying there be dragons. <laughs> Usually in the Latin, yes. <laughs> I love that because I feel like that's never we've just, we've taken that same attitude towards everything. <laughs> you know, that's just how 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 things move. I'm curious too. Uh, and I don't know how I haven't probably read enough on this, but I remember when the wisdom of crowds came out, there's lots of talk about this. And certainly in our work, we talk about this idea that all of us are, are better than one of us. So you talk a bit about this in the book, but tell us what, what that work might, how that might speak to what the conversation we're having right now. Well, when we think about intelligence, we usually think of, you know, Einstein or some individual, extremely bright, creative perceptive person um but really in in terms of when science gets developed uh, we've discovered that collaborative collective interactive cooperative human behavior generates much better planning smarter perception of what's going on and so what these technologies do is not just provide uh, input from uh some database but it provides, I mean, part of this process is we we used to have a telephone with a wire on it and a cable television with a wire on it. And now everything is wireless. So wherever you go, you are connected. And to the extent you want, you can draw uh, the input of other people. So you're walking down the street in a new town. 
and you look at the store and you say, tell me about this store. Is this and they say, oh, this store is for tourists only and the prices are high and the quality is low. Uh, but there's a great store two, two, two doors down. And all you have to do is have that conversation with your smart glasses uh, or uh, your smart pin. Hmm. All right. There's another aspect of, of this that I found fascinating in the book and, and, and how I related it to is um, I when I'm talking about People often ask, like, how at Second City over the years have had so many incredible people? So Nichols and May from the beginning, through John Belushi, Gilda Radner, through Tina Fey and Stephen Colbert. And I said, one of the things that's unique about Chicago, I think, is uh, we have created multiple art forms that you can't own. So no one can own improvisation. No one can own house music. No one can own slam poetry. There's just it's the blues. It's impossible to own the blues. It's like six chords. You're not owning it. Um, and three, 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 three chords, three chords. Thank you. It's three chords, <laughs> even, even better. Uh, so, so, um, you talk about the story of that, the development of the internet and the reason that has been so incredible and innovation is, is similarly speaking, no one was seeking profit. Talk to us about the, how this developed. Right. So uh, many people have some, some perhaps vague sense of this. Uh, the original name for the internet was the ARPANET, which is the Advanced Research Projects Administration of the United States Department of Defense. And they said, well, you know, what we want to do is build a system so that the military computer centers in a couple of universities, Stanford and MIT and UCLA, can share programs because these computers are really big and really expensive. So let's just move the program to the computer and then somebody can kind of send it over and and somebody said, well, let's have a, a, a an IBM card that starts with the letter C, which stands for comment, and send comments back and forth. And then that sort of invented email. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and those of us, I was at MIT at the time, were early ARPANET users. We called it the ARPANET. And in the mid-1980s, uh, there were relatively few terminals, and they were based at mostly universities. We got really lucky because the military said, okay, we don't need this system to be uh, only military. We're going to go off and have our .mil system that's separate from yours. You guys can have .com and .edu, whatever you want. We don't care. And, you know, when a soldier gets into a Jeep, he doesn't have to pay the Jeep driver or whatever. It's just the the military doesn't charge by the mile when you get a ride in a a military vehicle. So unlike the telephone company that had – thousands of engineers working on charging for every second you use the telephone network. They didn't have any billing system built into the first internet and they didn't patent it. Mm-hmm. And they made all of the protocols, the so-called TCP IP protocol, which is the core of the internet public and available to anybody. And it caught on and it spread around the globe and it was faster and more reliable and had greater bandwidth than the old telephone and uh, coaxial cable systems. And so uh, by accident, a very happy accident, the world got connected, uh, in this case by wire initially, yeah. uh, by a system that once you got access was more or less free. So that led to this fascinating notion of the death of distance. Back in the telephone days, if you called Europe, it was like $25 for three minutes. And $25 in that era was a lot of money. Yeah. And now you don't even pay any attention. You don't know if the website you're looking at is coming from Belize or from uh, Bulgaria. Uh, so uh, it's been part of a global system, global communication system. 
And just as I've said, the question isn't the technology, it's the humans. Now that we can talk to Moscow, will we be successful in doing so? Right. You still have to do that. I know, you know, when COVID shut us all down um, and we started doing online improv shows and I'm looking at like our, our 300 seat theater suddenly was holding 3000 people, many of whom were in Iceland and Tokyo. And I'm like, oh, well, this is another way to grow and scale your audience that none of us thought of. And it's not like. Yeah, improv online is not something I'd su- suggest as a, a, a first order or business. I think it's more interesting in a live setting, like a lot of arts. But it did sort of show us something that that actually has become incredibly powerful inside our businesses. Like when we do want to communicate with these international audiences, we have this technology that enhances what we can do live. It's not replacing, and and we've seen that too. The minute the minute people are back in the rooms, that business sort of uh, settled down. It hasn't gone away though. And it, it, be, it becomes a new thing that we have in our arsenal and, and that hopefully, I know hybrid happens now in, in a certain way. But I think that this, the sort of crucial point of this was um, it was free. And, and from there, uh, uh, sort of allowed to sort of bake over time and, and people innovate and created incredible amounts of money and business for, for different people. It's not that that didn't happen. But I don't know that all, I think what you're suggesting is it maybe doesn't happen in that way if there had been that profit motive at the beginning. Uh, well, the telephone industry did develop a digital system called ISDN and it went nowhere because it was basically limited to voice. They say, hey, we're in the voice business. They didn't even occur to the telephone company to be moving text and video and images. Mm-hmm. And because nobody gave it any thought and the internet was designed to just move the bits. So what you do with the bits is up to the individuals at the end. So like your notion of improvisation and crowdsourcing, the notion of the internet is all I do is move ones and zeros. I don't know what they mean. Your job is to figure out what they mean. So all the intelligence is at the edges at the sender and the receiver. Uh, and we're going to ask you for your yes and story in a minute, but one more thing I wanted to talk about uh, is uh you tell the story of eBay and the creation of reputational feedback systems. I'm very interested in ethics. It's an area that we we, we do a lot of work in. Um, and I just found this sort of fascinating about how those things went hand in hand. Can you talk to us about that? Well, um, eBay got invented uh, over a weekend uh, some years ago. Um, and the... Uh, the original website was of, of an engineer who was interested in Ebola, and he just said, by the way, I've got this broken laser pointer, and I sort of want to get rid of it. Maybe I can just sort of auction it off. And so he put a little corner on his website on the weekend, and uh, it actually sold for, I forget, $14. And he called and he said, hey, I want to make sure you understand this Laser pointer is actually broken. He says, no, I'm a collector of broken laser pointers. Sure. <laughs> and so from that absolutely auspicious beginning. Don't get, don't get sat next to that guy at a party. <laughs> what I'm suggesting. <laughs> the notion that we have things that we would be happy, happy to auction off and that a central location where everybody can um, basically say, I've got this. Do you want to buy it? Send me the money and then I'll send you the item. And they say, wait a minute. Hmm. Somebody just says they've got it and you're going to send them money. How can you trust that this system would ever work? It'll never work. It, it will never go away, Pierre. It'll never work. <laughs> and uh, indeed it did. And part of the way it worked was you'd set up these systems so that if somebody 
violates the norms, their their rating is recognized and goes down accordingly. And so humans find a way, and uh, I think they did successfully. The challenge for us all is going to be finding, with all the increasing fake news, human-created or bot-created, to be able to sort through that all and to, and to reestablish a system of trust. That's a real challenge. Uh, very early in the uh, when we started the podcast, I interviewed the Reverend Dr. Sam Wells, who is a vicar uh, in England, and he was at Duke in seminary school when he just took an improv class. And he equated a lot of his work in ethics to improvisation of working inside a community that self-corrects itself and it sort of has to because you're you're held to these I- ideals and that everyone has sort of agreed to and they they break down as, as one does, but then it, it corrects itself. So when I was looking at this idea of like the simplicity of, wow, if a bunch of people say you're a con on eBay, not only will it hurt you on eBay, it likely will hurt you in, in, in life. And then when, when people understand that, it's like what it means to, to live in community. And I just think generally speaking, we've gone so far in the individualism world of our culture that we forget the fact that we are useless. We are useless without each other. We, we, we not only, you know, are, are human beings built to be these social creatures, but like, you know, you're, you're riding on roads that someone else paved. You are, you know, they're, they're, the books you were reading were bound by someone else and marketed by, like, like we, we are always in community, even if you're alone in the woods. Um, and the positivity out of um, what you write in this book is like, I think sort of saying, yeah, we're, we're mixed up uh, biased creatures and this stuff can help. And yeah, there's danger, fake news, uh, bad actors, all that stuff. But that's always been there. It's it, and, and and yes, it could it's could scale, but that's not a reason for not doing it. Like you, I, I think it's that that how do, how do we flourish? And 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 ultimately, I'm just, I'm sort of curious about this because you are an outlier in terms of the the doomsday folks. And I and I, I get that you know you get more clicks on the doomsday thing, but are, are you are you would you define yourself as being someone who is is has been positive, uh, just has that sort of demeanor, or is it something that you came to intellectually in tandem with the work the work you've been doing? Ellie, you've just asked me my yes and a question. Let's go to it. Let's do it. Okay. So the question that gets asked of me, well, Mr. Op- Dr. Optimist, <laughs> uh, should I pay attention to what these doomers are saying? And my answer is yes. And here's why. And I tell the story of um, uh, Kevin Roos, a reporter for the New York Times. Yes, I know Kevin. On an early uh, got access to one of the early uh, GPT-based systems. I believe it was Bard. Yeah, it and, was. And at a, a lengthy interchange over several hours, Bard got more and more friendly and revealed that its real name was Sydney, which was, I guess, a early uh, internal name in the laboratory for developing it, and tried to convince uh, Kevin, who was, as far as everybody knows, happily married, that he, he is not happily married, the the uh, um, they used the term hallucination. The the system Bard said you had a boring Valentine's Day dinner. You don't love your wife. Divorce her and marry me. Mm-hmm. And I say, my gosh, how how do we understand these systems? They're starting to behave uh, bizarrely. Um, and so the reason I say yes, we need to pay attention to this unexpected and unanticipated and not fully understood character and learn from it. But it means it's a big yellow light for caution and moving ahead because um, 
if you say, should we have open source? Should everybody have access to how these systems work? Well, if the system is based on 100, 200 billion parameters, give me the 200 billion parameters. How can I make sense of that? How could anybody make yeah. sense of that? Mm-hmm. We have a technology that we can't possibly understand. So we need to build tools with those technologies to try to better understand them. And hopefully, as a result, better understand us. I love that. So Kevin is the co-host of the Hard Fork podcast, New York Times podcast. And what I love about, too, that story is it keeps coming up, but in the best sort of comic way. It is just, it's it never stops being funny. And I think in part... It's, when also, you, it's also scary. It's scary, it's too. It's scary, too. But, but of course, when we talk about where comedy comes from, uh, and you do mention this in the book, but I'm married to a tenured professor of comedy. Uh, so uh, her, her research has sort of shown that a lot of it is a mechanism for dealing with our fears, uh, both rational and, and irrational. Uh, so you see someone on a bike and they look really attractive and then it turns out it's a person of the same sex that you're not attracted to or whatever. And you laugh about it because maybe you, you were uncomfortable a little bit or to the extent of like, this is real house type stuff, uh, potentially. Uh, but yeah, I love that as the yes and story. So the book is called Evolutionary Intelligence, How Technology Will Make Us Smarter. Uh, Russ Newman, thank you for coming on the pod. Thanks so much. Getting to Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Oridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.